invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23, and uh, if uh, that's just on page 275 in, in the uh, red Bibles in the chairs. Samuel chapter 23. These are the last words of David, and then we will read about David's mighty men. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashebeth, Atachemanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the chief And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who uh, who, who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, 
the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kebzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set over him, and, and David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shema of Harad, Elika of Harad, Helaz the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer the of Anathoth, Mabunai the Hashuthite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai of Netopha, Helab the son of Baana of Netopha, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abba Elban, the Arbathite, Azmaveth of Bahurim, Eliaba, the Shaalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shama the Hararite, Ahaim, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbai, of Maaka, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Pairai the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai of Biroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today. And we ask that we would understand it, that we'd see your, your promises here, that we would be filled with hope in the blessings that will come, Lord Jesus, when you establish your everlasting kingdom and bring about new creation. I ask also, Lord, that you would strengthen the believers here, that you would strengthen them to, to see the importance of building your kingdom, to see the, uh, the, the worth of building your kingdom, to look to you, to be strong in you and with the strength of your might. And Lord, that they would have the same mindset as Paul, that they would endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. So I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us today and that you would encourage us with these words. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last words have a greater impact. They have a greater weight. For those who know that they will die soon, the words that they choose to say are often a transparent look into what's most important 
in their hearts. What they sincerely believe and, and, and sometimes even what they hope for for those that they love after they are gone. Today we'll be considering the last words of, of David, but first I want to consider the, uh, the last words of another David, Dr. David Paulison. Dr. David Paulison, he was, he was one of my favorite authors and uh, biblical counselors. He was the executive director of CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, and he was the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. In October of 2018, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage 4. Two years ago to this day, May 23, 2019, he was asked to give the closing comments at the graduation ceremony at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. But because of his health, uh, he, it had digressed and, and he was uh, then put onto hospice care. And so he had the Dean of Students read his final comments. They were his last public remarks. So what did David Paulison choose as his last charge to these graduates who would be leaders in ministries and churches and businesses and, and many other contexts? Well, he spoke of weakness, of being unafraid to be publicly weak. He highlighted King David and how he was, trans, how he was publicly transparent with his weaknesses, as we see in his Psalms. Like Psalm 40 when it says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Paulison also gives examples of, of, of the Apostle Paul and of the Lord Jesus himself. How, and how their, through their weaknesses, their, their weaknesses were never hidden from those uh, that, that lived with them. And it was through their weakness that God's power and strength worked through them in mighty, mighty ways. Paulison ended his address with these words. My deepest hope for you is that in both your personal life and in your ministry to others, you would be unafraid to be publicly weak as the doorway to the strength of God himself. Unafraid to be publicly weak as the doorway to the strength of God himself. Fifteen days later, Paulson died. His graduation address, they, they were not his very last words, but they were his last public words. And they expressed his bedrock confidence in God's strength working through our weakness. Today we consider the last words of David, but, but, but these last words, they're, they're more likely to be David's last public words. Not necessarily the last words on his lips before he died, uh, those words might actually be in 1 Kings chapter 2 when David is speaking to his son Solomon who would take the throne after him. Our previous chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 22 from last week, it was one of David's uh, last songs, I believe, and it, and, it, and it looked backwards. It looked back on God's faithfulness and how God had rescued David from all of his enemies and from death numerous times and had established David's kingdom. And today in chapter 23, David, he's, he's now looking death in the face. He, he can't overcome death forever, right? 
And how, but he's going to look past his imminent death and he's going to look to the future to see God's faithfulness to establish and consummate his everlasting kingdom. These are David's last public words. And today we will see their prophetic wisdom and how they testify not only to God's blessing of David's reign, but also in how they, they push us to hope in God's everlasting blessing that will come from the reign of Jesus Christ when he ushers in the new creation. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 4 and see David's last oracle. It's, a, it's an oracle of wisdom which we will later see is also prophetic. Let's start with verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David begins this oracle not by giving himself credit for how great he is as king, but rather David gives God credit for raising him up from just being simply the son of, of Jesse, who was just a nobody in the, this little podunk town of Bethlehem. It was God who sent Samuel to his house to choose and anoint uh, this mere shepherd boy. He's just a boy to be the king of the nation. David was not born into his kingship. This wasn't a monarchy that he, that he uh, was just being born into. And he didn't overthrow Saul to gain the throne. I mean, we've been in 2 Samuel now for a, a, quite a while. And again and again, uh, we, we, we just see how David didn't, didn't just killed Saul to get his to, to get the throne that was deserved that, that he deserved. But rather he was patient, trusting in God's promises that God would give him the kingdom. So David was chosen and raised up by God. David also makes note here that he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. Although David was a fearless warrior, just a manly man, he was also a man of poetry and music. A very emotionally intelligent and passionate man. A man who wrote out the deepest longings and, and, and weaknesses of, of, of his heart for all of his people to see and, and even sing. He led in battle and he led in worship. His leadership in battle, well, that, that passed away 3,000 years ago. But his leadership and worship continues to this day. For the past 3,000 years, he's continued to lead God's people through in worship through his psalms. These psalms have done countless spiritual battles against Satan again and again for the people of God uh, throughout the ages. People of God, their, their faith has been strengthened by these psalms in countless circumstances. Verses 2 and 3 say, here, uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So far, David has uh, convinced us in two ways that these words right here are, are, are particularly weighty. He, he first made note of that to us by, by telling us that these were his last words. And secondly, by reminding us that they come from a man raised up by God and anointed by him. And now, as if that weren't enough to get our attention, 
David gives us a third reason, the greatest reason for why we should listen carefully to his oracle. This oracle is not just David speaking. The Spirit of the Lord himself has spoken these words. So what David is about to say is massively important. It is pure wisdom. It is true prophecy. It is promises from the very mouth of God himself. What we see here is an example of what we believe about the whole Bible. That it is the very words of God spoken by God through his chosen people. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the creator of the universe has spoken to us. He has put his words on the mouths of his prophets and apostles and has spoken to us that we might know him and come into a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God gave this oracle to David. Let's look at the first half of this oracle, uh, verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them, on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This oracle, it's a, it's a little vague, and there's a few different ways of translating it. But there are definitely clear things about this. It's, it's clearly in the style of wisdom literature. Uh, it's, it's similar to other times that David has, has uh, written uh, wisdom. Uh, this, is, this has a lot of tones similar to uh, Psalm 1. The last two lines of verse 3 are particularly difficult to translate, but... Um, but they're very important. So I'm going to just give you guys a, a, a literal uh, translation, a wooden translation. It could be read like this. He who rules over mankind, righteous. He who rules, fear of God. He who rules over mankind, righteous. He who rules, fear of God. So that's a little choppy. It's, it's a little vague. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's clear what type of ruler God desires. God desires a ruler who is righteous, who is just, whoever lives out of the fear of God in his heart. The fear of God here, it's, it's a faith in God and an obedient respect for his commands and promises. The righteous ruler is one who lives Coram Deo, who lives before the face of God, Always conscious and aware that God sees all his dealings. That God is with him wherever he goes and that God has spoken to him commands and, and wisdom and promises to live by and to lead by. When David was at the end of his life, he wanted to point his son Solomon and, 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 and all of his people and, and especially his descendants to what the ideal king was like in God's sight. Now, David, he could have had just this long list of, 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 of uh, qualities that an ideal, supposed to, ideal king should have. But he only chose these two essential attributes, the fear of God and righteousness. As we look now to verse 3, 
We see that bl- the blessings from God that accompany this, uh, th- there's blessings that accompany this just ruler. God looks upon the just ruler and, and blesses his people like the morning dawn bursting forth through the darkness. Like the sun shining in full strength with no cloud to hinder it. Like the life-giving rain that comes and makes new grass sprout from the ground. This is beautiful poetry of life and light and peace, of shalom. This is the most important piece of wisdom that David wanted to pass on to his people, to his descendants who would sit on his throne. And this wisdom, it would make all the difference for the people of God. I mean, just if, as you read through First and Second Kings and, and you, see, you see David's house, uh, they are not marked by righteousness and the fear of God. They do what's right in their own sight. And oh, how things would have changed if they would have heeded the wisdom of their father David. Now in verse 5, David shows himself to be an example of a just ruler and that God had prospered him. But he does not give himself the credit. He credits all these blessings to the everlasting covenant that God made with him. Verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? David's prosperity was was not because of who he was on his own, but rather his prosperity was a result of God's promise to him. David is referring here to the Davidic covenant from chapter 7. This is why David had an unshakable bedrock hope for what would happen to the throne after his death. He had faith, not in his sons or his grandsons, but but in the promises of God, in the word of God to him. He believed that God's promises were everlasting, that they were ordered in all things and secure. Ordered in all things and secure. So just as David would look out and see the sun rise again and and have bedrock confidence that tomorrow the sun is going to rise again because it is ordered that way. Just as David had confidence in that, so also he had confidence that God would fulfill his promises to him. As sure as the sun would come up tomorrow, so God will fulfill his promises for his throne David died in peace because his faith rested on this promise. Not even his own failures or the failures of his descendants could make God revoke his promises to him. Brothers and sisters, may we also rest our faith in the promises of God on his everlasting covenant made to us in Christ Jesus. And when we lie on our deathbeds, may we do so in peace. Remembering that God has promised that our sins are forgiven in Christ, that we are sons and daughters of God, that when we die, we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord, and that one day when Christ returns, He will fulfill all His promises to us and resurrect us with glorified bodies and give us a forever home with Him in the new creation.
on our deathbeds. Let us rest our souls in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. His death was enough to cover all our sins. We need not add a single good work to Christ's work. His work alone is sufficient to satisfy God's righteous demands. These new covenant promises, these gospel promises are ours through faith in Christ. So let us rest secure, like how David rested. David gives himself as an example of of being blessed as a just ruler. And then in verses 6 and 7, he gives a counterexample. A counterexample of of what God does with the wicked. This is really typical of wisdom literature. To contrast the righteous with the wicked. To contrast blessing and life with curse and death. Verse 6. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. We know that thorns are the symbol of curse throughout the Bible. God in Genesis 3 cursed the ground with thorns. And then Jesus on the cross, he wore a crown of thorns, symbolizing that he was bearing the curse of the fall. The wicked, however, are still under God's curse for sin. And as a result, they they are thrown away. They are burned with the fires of hell. So we see two types of people. Those who are blessed under the rule of God's anointed king. Who are, who are like new grass from the rain. And then there are those who reject the rule of God's anointed king and, and they're like cursed thorns that are burned up like fire, with fire. If you're here today and if you've not taken refuge in Jesus Christ, if he's not your savior and your, your king, then I would urge you to hear God speaking to you today from his word. The Holy Spirit has spoken His word today to each one of us. Hear these words. Turn away from your sins and turn and come to Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and you will be saved. Pray for mercy from God and He will hear you and forgive you no matter how evil the things that you've done in the past have been. And He will welcome you into His covenant family. So to summarize these first seven verses, this first section, we see David speaking his last public words to share wisdom to his people and his descendants about what the ideal ruler is like in God's sight. And then then he shares also what blessings follow that ruler to all of God's people. And then the covenant promises that are secure, as, as secure as bedrock for all of God's blessings. So now we move to a, a really fun uh, section of scripture, David's Mighty Men. Back when I used to work at Camp Shamanah, uh, I would read this section uh, to uh, the middle school boys there, and they would just they would just eat it up. Uh, these are just thrilling mini stories that uh, just recounted the glory days of David's kingdom. So how how does this section about David's Mighty Men how how does it relate to the section that we just read? David's rule was blessed by God in many, many ways, wasn't it? The expansion of his kingdom, victory over his enemies, the explosion of corporate worship. 
His reign was like, like the morning dawn bursting forth out of the darkness of Saul's reign. One particular way that David's just rule ushered in God's blessings on his people was that God raised up mighty men to, uh, to, to, to secure and establish and expand his kingdom in the promised land. So these mighty men, they're, they're examples of God's blessing upon David. They, they are living examples of God's faithfulness to David to establish him and his descendants on his throne. Mighty men like these, they were actually promised to be a blessing to God's people if they obeyed his commands. We see this uh, uh, conditional promise in Leviticus 26, verses 7 and 8. Back in the law, it said, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. So God promised mighty victory to his people if they kept his commands and followed after him. Now, as we know, Israel and David were not, they were spotty in, in, in their obedience to God, but, but God blessed them with mighty men in order to fulfill his promises, his covenant, that he might conquer all of David's enemies and build and establish his kingdom. I believe David knew that. As we read these many stories of these super warriors who killed hundreds of men by themselves, we see that all the credit goes back to the Lord. Look at uh, verses 10, 12, and 16. In verse 10, we see Eliezer, one of the mighty three. Now, Eliezer rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, his hand, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. So God, through making this man a mighty man by giving him this his strength god brought about victory for his kingdom we see the same thing in verse 12 with shema when shema when he he took his stand in the midst of the plot when everybody was fleeing he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the philistines and the lord worked a great victory so god through making a man mighty brought about victory for his kingdom. Then in verse 16, we see a situation where David, I mean, he, I mean, he might just be simply expressing in passing that he, he, just, he longed for water from his hometown of Bethlehem. And then three of these men, they heard this and they made that dream a reality. <laughs> they fought through the Philistine line, went all the way to Bethlehem and brought him back some water. That was probably about a 26-mile trip that they took to, to, to do this for him. In verse 16, David was overwhelmed by this. And in humility, he, just, he couldn't drink it. And instead, he poured it out to the Lord as an act of worship. David worshipped God by pouring out, out. He was worshipping Him for giving Him men who would go to such an extent to support Him in establishing God's given kingdom. So through these mighty men, we see that God providentially blesses his people with gifts so that he might work through them to bring about victory for his kingdom. 
And God continues to work in that same way today with His church. We have a spiritual battle, and we are called to be good soldiers who don't get entangled in and distracted with worldly problems. We are to focus on expanding God's kingdom by, by fighting with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, who said in 2 Samuel chapter 2, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Yes, Paul believed in election. Yes, he believed in the sovereignty of God, but he knew that there was a time when God called him to endure hardship, many, many great hardships, in order to bring about the salvation of God's elect. And so this is the same mindset that we are to have as, as well. That we are to be willing to endure hardship for the sake of God's elect obtaining salvation. We fight not against flesh and blood, as David did, but we go forth, we do go forth in the same strength that he had. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, as Ephesians 6 tells us. So much more could be said here about, about the mighty men. I mean, in here we see that Joab is mentioned three times, but he's not a mighty man. He's not on the list. He's just mentioned in reference. We see that Uriah the Hittite is, is mentioned last. Kind of gives you that, that, that final remembrance of, of, uh, of, 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 of David's failure in that regard. And God's grace to continue to give him mighty men, to continue to establish his kingdom despite David's sinfulness. So there's so much more that we could dive in here with the mighty men. But let's end by fixing our hope on, on David's ultimate hope, the future everlasting reign of Jesus Christ. The oracle of David is wisdom, but it's also prophetic. It points to Jesus Christ, the righteous ruler who perfectly feared God and is the source of all blessing. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It's a, it's a prophecy by Jeremiah that just fits perfectly with what David is saying here as well. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. This prophecy in Jeremiah, just, it's, it just fits like a shoe with David's prophecy. Jesus is the true David, the anointed one, the Christ, who was born in the podunk town of Bethlehem to a nobody of the line of Jesse. And he went from, from humble and poor beginnings to being raised up to be the shepherd and king of all Israel, of all God's people. God raised him up from, from the lowest depths, from death, and he raised him up to the highest pinnacle, the throne of God, to be God's just ruler of all creation. And Jesus will one day 
dawn on all creation as the morning light and he will bring with him new life, new creation and there will be no place untouched by God's blessing. No cave, no shadow, no, no ocean depth from the bless, hidden from the blessing that Jesus Christ will bring. One of my favorite uh, examples in literature from this uh, is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. You probably know where I'm going with this. The White Witch's reign had brought, an, about, an, uh, brought, had brought about a continual state of winter, always cloudy, always winter. But then, as Aslan the Lion, the true ruler of Narnia, as he returned, the snow begins to melt. The clouds give way to sunlight. The trees begin to blossom and the grass begins to pop up and grow all around. The just ruler has come and his blessings have touched all of creation. So it will be when Christ returns. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot wait for your return. How we long for you to come back and make everything right again, to bring new life, new creation all around us. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your words here. We thank you for your covenant promises that are a bedrock for our hope. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. We also thank you, Lord, that you will give strength to us. Even though we are weak people, you make your strength comes through our weakness. Help us, Lord, each one of us here to be strong in you and in the strength of your might. Help us to take up our cross and follow you. Help us to uh, ha- have a kingdom mindset to see how you are, how you're growing your kingdom. And Lord, I ask that you would give gifts to each one of us here and, and help us to use our gifts to expand that kingdom, to establish your kingdom. Help us to, to see what, the, just to look at our areas of influence and to, to see how you might be asking us to possibly even endure hardship to advance your kingdom, to build it. So we thank you, Lord, that you are with us. We thank you, uh, for the promises that are ours through through your through your covenants, Lord, and so I ask, Lord, that uh, you would uh, encourage us all to walk by faith, and uh, to and when we're on our deathbed, that our that we could rest secure. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.